0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at Byte.com. That's BYTE.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with our daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, at the newly redesigned website, subchina.com. Definitely go check it out. We are happy with the redesign, but want your feedback on the site. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina, Good morning there, Jeremy. Please greet the listeners, won't you?
2: Good morning, Kaiser. Good morning, listeners. And I, I have to tell you what's going on in my holler in, in, in Tennessee. We've been invaded by swarms of ladybugs, which was something I never knew existed. When I was a kid in South Africa, we used to only get like one, maybe two together. And they were so well, they're good and for yeah, you. Yeah, they were good luck. Well, now there's swarms of them at the end of the fall. They seem to uh, just uh, commit sort of, uh, you know, kamikaze themselves into our uh, windows. It's quite strange. Anyway, something new in America every day for me.
1: (laughs) They eat aphids. They're good. They're good for the garden. (laughs) Anyway... uh, there is always a certain hubris whenever someone claims to be living in an historic moment, uh, but at least here in the United States, there is little doubt that future historians are going to look back at this year, 2017, as a major inflection point in the long struggle for, for gender equality. Uh, 2017, after all, has been the year of Harvey Weinstein and Roy Moore, and and now more, more recently, Charlie Rose, and who knows who else by the time that you're actually listening to this. Uh, it's been the year when so far, just so far, Dozens of men in public life have been publicly accused of making unwanted sexual advances on women, of sexually harassing women, of actually sexually assaulting women. It's the year of Susan Fowler, who blew the whistle on Uber, and of course, of Rose McGowan, who publicly accused Harvey Weinstein. It's the year of the Me Too hashtag when countless women came forward to tell their own painful and often very long suppressed stories their own experiences with predatory men, and looming over all of this, driving, I think, much of the anger, the courage, and the sense of urgency is, of course, this presidency of this man who defeated the first woman to be nominated to head a major party ticket in the U.S., and, and who won despite multiple allegations and even what many would consider a candid, taped admission of serious, serious sexual misconduct. So at this moment in history, when many of us sense that things are in the midst of a
2: momentous transformation, which we're seeing play out not only here in the United States, but across Europe and in countries of Latin America, those of us in the China field naturally ask how this is playing out in China, and who better to ask than Lisa Hong Fencher, one of the most prominent voices looking at feminism in China. Leta, of course, is the author of Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China, uh, and she's been on our podcast to talk about that. And she's now working on a new book called Betraying Big Brother, The Rise of China's Feminist Resistance. The book will be published uh, around, by this time next year, I believe. Later, it's really great to have you back on Seneca.
0: It's so great to be back with you as well, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Hey, Leta. so let's... And Kaiser, yes. <laughs>
1: thanks, thanks for not forgetting. <laughs> Let, let's start right in asking you about uh, the extent to which women in China and and perhaps men too, and and the media and institutions, to what extent are they picking up on what's happening here in the U.S.? Uh, do they really appreciate just how widespread and extensive this is? And uh, do you think that people in China understand why it's happening now? And and perhaps most importantly, um, do they see it as really relevant? to their experience in china
0: well first of all if you're just talking about the me too hashtag campaign in the u.s i think that most chinese are really not aware of it actually because um, it's not getting a lot of play in the chinese media so of course you know the social media the internet is extensively censored as you well know so the question really is what else is going on with regard to sexual assault and sexual harassment of women in China, what's happening on social media there? Is there going to be a similar Me Too social media campaign? Um, if not, why not? Th- those kinds of
1: questions. Not, not just Me Too. I'm talking about really, you know, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, um, everything that's happening in our uh, in our society right now. This this massive transformation. Surely they can't not know that this has been happening in the US. It's being reported a bit, at least, yeah.
0: Right. Well, of course, there's that uh, notorious China Daily op-ed that claimed that sexual harassment just doesn't really happen in China, and so you wouldn't have a Harvey Weinstein moment because of China's Confucian culture. But that was just a ridiculous op-ed that was widely pilloried particularly by foreigners on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and there was such an outcry over the op-ed that China Daily actually removed the piece right. pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think within a day or two. They did.
2: Yeah, it wasn't it was I think, you know, at definitely no longer than 48 hours and you right. know, it wasn't written by a Chinese person. It was a Canadian guy in his 60s I think who wrote it. So, perhaps not the best source of authority on the experience of women in China. But I mean, I don't think Anyone who spent time living and working in China could be oblivious to the enormous extent of sexual harassment and even assault in the Chinese workplace. It might differ in its, you know, context and its, you know, the, the details of how it happens. Uh, but it, you know, we all know it happens. In the U.S., it was, of course, the media, the press, that um, at least this year knocked down the wall and let a torrent through. Why is the Chinese press so quiet? I mean, okay, obviously it's China, so the press is highly censored. But this does seem like one issue where the Chinese press might have a chance at, at doing something. Is the censorship too strict, even of this subject? Do they lack the ability or do they not care? Yes. Are the news organizations themselves rife with bad behavior at the top?
0: Right. Well, I know for sure from my own research um, and extensive conversations with women in China over many years that sexual assault, rape, and sexual harassment in the workplace are rampant across China. And actually, the Chinese media have reported from time to time, and they continue to, Report on individual rape cases. Sometimes the cases can involve, you know, more than uh, quite a few victims. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be really horrible. But but what you don't see is a really thorough investigation with any follow-up. And I, I haven't personally researched the news organizations, but I would believe that the news organizations themselves are probably told perhaps explicitly but more likely just implicitly that this if if the case becomes too big it involves perhaps powerful people or it just gets too big, it involves too many women, and there's a snowball effect, then that the news organization would be told to shut it down. I think this is quite likely based on what happens with other organizations in China. That makes
2: a lot of sense. And based on not only this issue, but any any issue that can create controversy in society, that's basically how it works, right? So well, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, I mean, just, like, uh, just uh, as a point of comparison, if you look at... Uh, corruption and the princelings, the wealth of senior party leaders. You can see individual reports. Some of them are quite good by Tyson Magazine, for example. But they stop. They can't go all the way to its logical conclusion because the logical conclusion would be too destabilizing, too politically sensitive. And it's the same thing with sexual assault and rape cases and sexual harassment, because these are problems. Sexual violence in China is such a serious, deep-rooted problem. It is literally everywhere. It permeates society. That if there were a news organization that that wanted to try to do some kind of investigation, kind of like the New York Times investigation of Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood, that it, it, it would be shut down. So, I mean, you might look at what's happening in the U.S. Just to kind of give some comparative perspective here, people in Hollywood knew about Harvey Weinstein's sexual predatory behavior for decades, and people did not talk about it, or they they whispered about it. It was kind of common knowledge. There was a lot of complicity. But it was only very recently that you had the New York Times and then the New Yorker run these incredibly well-researched, investigated, very thorough reports about just how extensive Weinstein's predatory behavior was. And then who was it who came out? These are famous Hollywood actresses that everybody recognizes. right? And so first it was a a handful of Hollywood actresses that came out. And then you started to have more and more Hollywood actresses. And these are all household names. They're, you know, these gorgeous white women who are are beloved around the world. Um, And then only after you had several dozen Hollywood actresses come out, then you had... Um, this new hashtag campaign, Me Too, where the floodgates just started opening and a lot of ordinary women were speaking out. And I might add that this is not the first time in the U.S. this happened during the 2016 election as well. You know, after candidate Trump bragged about uh, being able to grab women by the crotch, so he was basically bragging about sexually assaulting women with impunity. There was also a massive viral social media campaign where with all sorts of women across America coming out for the first time about rape or sexual assault that happened you know many years ago. Um, and there was this real sense that something was changing and we had but everybody was expecting Hillary Clinton to win. Um, that was what all the reporting said. The polls said, you know, everybody expected that we were going to have our first woman president. And then, of course, Trump was elected. So so when you it's, look at... Isn't, uh, Lisa,
2: may, may I ask sort of about this? Because uh, isn't an interesting point of comparison between China and the United States that the liberal America that reads the New York Times, you know, everybody's horrified and shocked and tweeting Me Too or support of... Of the campaign. But there is another America, you know, the Trump voting America, who do not feel that way. And China actually has a lot more in common with that side of America.
0: Yes, for sure. But on the other hand, there actually is a big swath of China, the millions and millions of Chinese women who actually really want to come out about their experiences of being raped or sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. So then we get into um, the obstacles facing those ordinary women in China. You know, what does it take for an ordinary woman to file a complaint Let's just say we're talking about sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, first of all, I mean, even though technically there is some language in Chinese law saying that sexual harassment is illegal, it's so incredibly vague that there is really virtually no legal recourse for a woman who is sexually harassed or raped or sexually uh, assaulted so any woman i mean there are women who have filed lawsuits but almost not none of them ever win and so what about you know a woman who would want to come out on weibo for example and say i was sexually assaulted by so and so powerful man at this and th- this company well, the first thing that would happen would be, she would be deluged with uh, misogynistic abuse online. Um, and and that would probably be enough to dissuade her from coming out.
1: Oh, you're absolutely correct. The trolls would swarm and it would be horrible and hateful and intimidating. And that kind of an outpouring of misogyny would probably be enough to squelch really the voices of any women who would want to speak out. But what about the other means of silencing women? I mean, we're all aware that the apparatus of state coercion has been used against feminists in recent years. I think your new book is going to talk quite a bit about uh, the Feminist Five who are jailed for their activism. So I, I assume that Internet censorship would certainly target feminism in China, too. So has it been used that way? And, and can you give us some examples of, of how it has been?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, um, first of all, just a little bit of context about... Um, the current government crackdown on feminist activists in China. Um, It really dates back to 2015 when the so-called Feminist Five, um, five young feminist activists were arrested and put into detention um, because they were planning to hand out stickers about sexual harassment in several major Chinese cities. So this was the issue that they chose, sexual harassment. And they were planning to do this event to commemorate International Women's Day in 2015. And just days before, um, there was a big, sweeping, coordinated round of arrests in multiple Chinese cities. So that was when the feminist crackdown began officially from the state. And, and ever since then, there's been um, Much more extensive censorship of feminists online on Weibo and um, Weixin or WeChat. So, for example, there have been on and off these campaigns where you, you, you a lot a lot more women are self identifying as feminist online. And so um, if you just look at the number of Weibo accounts with the word feminist in it, um, there have been waves of crackdowns on people starting new accounts with the word feminist in it. And just earlier this year, coinciding with International Women's Day, which was also the second anniversary of the arrest of the Feminist Five, Weibo actually... Suspended for a whole month, China's preeminent feminist website, Feminist Voice Voices, they said, um, and and they, the the official excuse that Weibo gave was that, oh, you posted something that violates our rules, and it was an article about a strike, a women's strike that was kind of aimed at President Trump that was going to be held on International Women's Day. Oh, so the right, article yeah. wasn't even about China. The article was and not And their about website China. name isn't even
2: f- feminist as far as I remember. Isn't it just Nusheng, just like women's voices of China no, or something like that? Or no, it- the
0: name is actually Nusheng, so it is. It's oh, Feminist Voices. Okay.
2: Feminist Voice.
0: And that is the most popular feminist website and Weibo account in China. And it's also where a lot of the political activists active in feminism got their start, and they're still very actively involved um, with the website. So there's this combination of first of all, individual persecution of feminist activists, where the police are harassing them a lot, coming and knocking on their doors all the time or taking them in for interrogation regularly. And then there is the internet component of the crackdown, where women who identify publicly as feminist are also just more rigorously censored than other women. And then there's this particular website, Niuquan Zhisheng, Feminist Voices, which is really in um, in the crosshairs of the the censors right now.
1: Later, we we talked a little bit about the misogynist trolls, and Jeremy suggested that the Chinese public at large, in its attitudes about gender, is maybe more like that. Part of America that voted for Trump, I fear I would tend to agree with him. Um, I wanted to look at this in a broader context here, and my sense is that the kind of populist nativism that we've seen surge really in so many countries around the world. Has always featured a deep streak of misogyny. Uh, we, we've seen a kind of angry backlash in China against the so called white left, the, the Baizuo, uh, not only against liberals in the developed world, but also at China's own coastal elites, at uh, people who have supposedly adopted the white left's values. Uh, we've seen it take aim at Islam in China, which is something we've talked about on this show, at at Africans living in China, uh, at LGBT people. Uh, So to what extent is it also directing its angry energies against feminism in China? And um, how have the politics of feminism fared over the last year or so? Um, does this, in your mind, have anything to do with the global wave of anti-feminist backlash?
0: Sure. I mean, there are several different dimensions to that. Um, first of all, <laughs> let's just establish that Chi- Chinese society is deeply sexist and misogynistic. Um, and in part, that comes from the state. So the state propaganda does play a very heavy role in shaping public opinion. Um, so, so that explains. You know, it, there, there is a huge amount of misogynistic abuse and trolling online, um, and also um, this. Well, you know, nationalism in China has always. It's been a strong tool of the government to kind of deflect from other problems faced by the government, um, and so so often. Uh, the propaganda will try to whip up a nationalistic frenzy and uh, and a lot of this is xenophobic nationalist sentiment which recently has become tinged with a strong um strong dose of misogyny thrown in there as well um and and let's not forget that weibo only started in 2009 and and every time I think about that, it kind of amazes me to think that, you know, before 2009, you didn't have Weibo, um, because it's just such an incredibly prominent feature of Chinese life today. Um, But uh, there are, I mean, there are a lot of just natural sexists and misogynists in China. And there is Uh, generally speaking, very low awareness of women's rights and feminism. And I I wrote a lot about that low awareness, low consciousness of women's rights in my first book, Leftover Women. Um, But what is really fascinating is, and this is something that I write about in my second book, what is fascinating is just in the last few years, there's been a real feminist awakening happening among a lot of urban Particularly educated women. Um, They Uh, are. So, Lady, can I
2: specifically ask you actually, because I wanted to ask you about the concept of leftover woman, which, if I may give a soundbite, correct me if I'm wrong, but refers to women who are of a certain age, which, you know, maybe starts at about 27 these days who are, you know, deemed by society to be left over because they haven't got married. And it's a kind of a sexist concept that's been uh, perpetuated and encouraged by certain elements of, of, of the government. So uh, correct me if that description is wrong, but how has the conversation in China changed? You know, these urban women you're talking about who have new feminist awareness, are they um, changing China's idea of leftover women?
0: Right. First, let me just give a brief summary again of, so so this I, I argued in my first book that the term Shengnu, leftover women, was strongly pushed by the Chinese government. and it started in two thousand and seven um when Xinhua News and People's Daily began pushing these news reports and commentaries, insulting, stigmatizing, shaming women over the age of 27 or or even 25 for being single, saying that these women are too educated, they're too picky about men, they're never going to find a husband because their standards are too high and they'd better hurry up and marry or they're going to be too old and nobody will ever want to marry them. So that happened in 2007. And actually, I wrote an article about it that was translated into Chinese and published Um, in the Chinese edition of the Wall Street Journal. And that article was very widely read in 2011. That was when the article came out in China. And um, I received just, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of messages from women in response to that. And so even back then in 2011, because nobody had ever identified this term as being a tool of Chinese propaganda in order to get women to marry early before. Um, People had always thought of it as just a naturally occurring, just organic phenomenon in society. But I argued that this was a deliberate strategy of the Chinese government to try to push women to return to the home, to marry, and to have children. So um, at the same time, um, really starting at the same time, around 2011, 2012, you started to see a lot more um, feminist activists holding uh, what they called acts of performance art to draw attention to all sorts of women's rights issues, like, for example, domestic violence, sexual assault, discrimination against women in the workforce. Um, Feminist Voices the the website that is really being censored recently they were um, tweeting much more than they they had previously and so over the last few years women, more and more women have been pushing back against well, all sorts of things they've been pushing back against the term "shengnu" leftover women, but that's just one element of their pushback they're pushing back in general against all kinds of sexism, um, and particularly gender discrimination in employment, which is a really big issue that virtually every woman looking for a job is very aware of. You know, when when they interview for a job, most employers will ask them, "Well, are you married? When are you going to marry? When are you going to have a child?" And now, with the two-child policy, they're asking, when are you going to have your second child? So, So women in China are beginning to be aware of just how sexist the society is. And at the same time, you have more and more of these women, particularly young, educated women, identifying as feminist and then you have uh, the backlash coming from the government which is deliberately trying to wipe out a feminist movement
1: this assertion that the concept of leftover women was something pushed by if not actually originating with the state itself is central to your book but it's also one of the claims that it's gotten some pushback from people I know who've read it and by at least one of the reviews that I've read could you tell us what the evidence is uh, for the idea that popularizing the notion of leftover women was actually a state project?
0: Well, I mean, I I write about this extensively in my book. Um, I examined in detail the articles that were being um, turned out in 2007. And um, it wasn't just a one-off thing. Um, Xinhua News and People's Daily came out with... uh, several articles that were very similarly worded, talking about how the Ministry of Education had just added a new word to its official lexicon. And the word is sheng leftover woman. And the definition of that word is provided by the All-China Women's Federation. And the All-China Women's Federation defined the term leftover woman to mean an educated, urban woman over the age of 27 who is still single. So Xinhua and then People's Daily were running these articles, and then these articles would be picked up by virtually every other news organization across China with very little changes in the wording. So I just tracked hundreds and hundreds of cases of these articles. Um, And then then the article with virtually identical wording would reappear with maybe a different headline and a different photograph. Um, And then there were articles, again, coming from Xinhua News, not just talking about leftover women in general, but creating what they called subcategories of leftover women. There were four subcategories, starting with women age 25 to 27. And so... So that was one element of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you make a pretty strong case for it, I think, yeah.
0: Right. But I also looked at just before the Chinese state media came out with this, what I argue was a coordinated propaganda campaign to stigmatize urban-educated single women, just before they did that, in January of 2007, the Chinese State Council came out with a very important population announcement saying that China faces a severe problem with what it called the low quality of its population, 低素质. And so China urgently needed, and these are the words of the Chinese State Council, urgently needed to upgrade population quality, 提高人口素质. And so um, it's it said, you know, there. This is a big problem for social sub- stability. We have all these excess men caused yeah. by the sex ratio imbalance. Um, we really need to get uh, these women to marry the men. We need to. Um, so this. So it was clearly a policy of eugenics, and the state council appointed a number of agencies to be in charge of fulfilling this goal and one of the agencies was uh, the ministry of civil affairs um one of them was the all china women's federation and just less than two months after that very important population decision came out then you had this media onslaught um that I describe. And so listen, this is an argument. I never found a smoking gun saying proving that there was some meeting of the standing committee of the Politburo where they all agreed, hey, let's start a propaganda campaign, but I was just looking at the evidence and uh, and so I it was believe- an act
2: of social engineering. I mean, you you yes. saw evidence that,
0: so, I mean, I, I, it's still an argument, but um, I believe uh, very strongly, I, I, I think that it's true. And also, I think that um, today, looking at um, what's happening today, so I, it, it, you can see it as uh, what happened in 2007 with this very strong effort to get these educated women to marry, um, well, then, just last uh, 2016, the Chinese government revealed that it was abolishing the one-child policy, and now, what do you see in the Chinese propaganda? Very strong, aggressive attempts to get urban women, in particular, to have two children, and so the with the two-child policy, um, that two-child policy is targeting the same demographic urban educated women. These are women who were until now not allowed to have two children, uh, according to the one child policy. Um, and, and now the propaganda is um, not so much aimed. They don't so much throw out this term, leftover women all the time, mainly because so many women are kind of disgusted by it and have point pointed out how sexist it is Um, but now they're they're using a different tactic which is um, talking about how wonderful it is to have two children and how educated women should marry and have these two children as early as possible it's all related to china's demographic problems with the aging of the population more and more educated women in particular are turning their backs to marriage. They don't want to get married. They don't want to have children. You know, the birth rates are falling. And the Chinese government perceives this as a really severe threat. And it's a it's a social stability problem.
1: So, so, Lena, I think you make a really strong case. And it's clear enough, at least to me, that this idea of leftover women is is pernicious. It's deeply sexist, that it's a pathology that ultimately works against the advancement of women in public and professional life. But does it really compare as a problem for Chinese society to sexual violence in the form of assault or, or sexual harassment, which I, I think might strike many as, as simply just more urgent?
0: Well, um, I would agree with you that sexual violence, endemic sexual violence is a really serious problem. But what is it, given the incredibly repressive nature of Chinese society, which is becoming even more politically repressive, repressive um, under President Xi Jinping. Where Where is the space for women to push back? Well, it's really politically sensitive to try to start a massive social media campaign about sexual violence, for example. I mean, we already talked about how that would not be able to get off the ground. And in fact, there are a lot of attempts to get it off the ground. I mean, just... Um, just yesterday, you know, that, that there have been repeated efforts by a lot of these young feminist activists in China to launch new forms of campaigns about sexual violence or sexual assault or harassment. And every single time, those women who launch the campaign are then visited by the police and told that they have to stop doing this or they're going to be arrested and... Um, you know, or their Weibo account is shut down, um, they're harassed. And so so then the campaign is shut down. But just yesterday, I noticed there's another one that just started. Um, and so these feminist activists are going to continue to keep uh, pushing back. But I don't think And it's- uh, later, what, what is
2: it that they fear? Um, uh, what is it that the party, the party state- fear so much i mean that you know there's some obvious things that they fear any threat to social stability and you've l- outlined a good argument that is logical if horrible as to why the you know social engineering connected with the leftover women and now encouraging women to have two children but for me the uh, you know the arrest of the feminist five marked a a turning point where um where I thought that there was more space for feminism in China. And since then, it's very clear that the party state is
0: uh, quite fearful. Why are they so fearful? Well, there are many reasons why they're fearful. First of all, the feminist activists are extremely well-organized mobilizers of society. So they are coordinating across multiple Chinese cities coordinating very effectively, they use social media very effectively, they're able to get their message out. And their message about, in many cases, their message is about sexual violence or sexual harassment. And those messages resonate deeply with millions of Chinese women. So there is broad mass appeal for these messages. Basically, the you know, the messages are, Women should not have to put up with being raped. They shouldn't. This is something that is inexcusable. It's an injustice. Women shouldn't have to put up with, you know, their bosses groping them in the workplace. Women shouldn't have to put up with, you know, a man who's far less qualified than them getting hired. Uh, or they shouldn't have to put up with getting paid a lot less than a man who's much less qualified than they are or you know with regard to university admissions a lot of universities now are are implementing a kind of reverse affirmative action where they're they're trying to recruit more male students so so the bar is a lot higher women have to score higher on the university entrance exam in many cases than men so these are messages that women across China can identify with. So that's one. Two, the women, the activists, are such skillful political mobilizers and organizers that obviously anytime time there is a group that has shown itself to be capable of organizing successfully and effectively, then immediately the Chinese government is going to see them as a potential force of political opposition and a threat to the communist party i mean we see that across the board with this very broad sweeping crackdown on civil society
1: yeah i guess we've seen it occasionally even in some areas that don't seem an immediate threat to party power at all where you think the party state might even embrace or at least co opt movements like you know environmentalism civil society groups around green issues right
0: right um and then and then there's just the it, it's also contrary to a very central project of the Communist Party right now, which is to try to I mean in their own words and you know the state council said this explicitly in 20, 2007 that China has an urgent problem with the low quality of its population the low quality I mean meaning that the most of China in in the view of its leaders most of China is not sufficiently educated and trained and this is going to be a problem for China in the future as it tries to build its economy and so with the aging of the population, with the new trend of more and more educated women turning their backs on marriage, more and more of these women don't want to have children. But these are the very women that the Chinese government wants or needs they feel china needs to have educated women having babies producing the future the workforce of the future that will build a knowledge-based economy that will you know help uh, china's economic development in, in the future and also preserve social stability so that there are so many reasons why the Communist Party believes that it's important to send the message that women, particularly educated women, need to marry, they need to have children. And I don't see any signs anywhere that the Communist Party actually wants to promote, wants to tap into the vast potential of these very educated and capable women by employing them or by appointing them to political positions. I mean, that's another uh, issue that we haven't talked about.
1: So, Leda, this next question may seem a little philosophical and maybe a little convoluted, but uh, bear with me because I think it's really important. Uh, Social change, you will grant, takes time. So even in many liberal Western democracies, which have political cultures that are relatively progressive. If the year 2017 has taught us anything, it's just how deeply embedded these sexist attitudes are here in, in the West, in the developed West, how entrenched the patriarchy is and how so much of it is tied inextricably to male power. But then you look at, at certain Islamic countries or many poor countries in the developing world. And you clearly see that there are even greater barriers, that they've even further to go than we do. Um, We clearly haven't gotten it solved. Um, So what I want to know is, how should we calibrate our expectations when we are looking at a country like China? I mean, when the three of us started studying China, the country was still, what, 75% agrarian, right? It still still has the the deep-rooted chauvinism that you would expect to find in pretty much any agricultural society it's got this, you know, Confucian political culture. And and despite uh, women hold up half the sky, despite the marriage law and the end of concubinage and arranged marriage and and all these efforts to stop sex-selective abortion, we're still talking about really strong, very stubborn forces of traditionalism. I mean, America has seen an earthquake happen. Uh, This is socially advanced America. This is really hugely disruptive. So is the Chinese Communist Party Really wrong to see feminism as as destabilizing as revolutionary even uh, and and is it wrong to w- want to see China move maybe more gradually and, and and how does any of this impact what you then do as an activist?
0: Well, I mean, I certainly think that. I mean you could say the same about virtually any issue actually in China that that, that is considered to be um a threat by the the Communist Party. But let's just talk about feminism. So, I mean, personally, I know uh, I think the party is making a huge mistake. I mean, look at all of the talented women in China. Just imagine if they were actually supported by the government. Imagine if the government actually took the slogan of gender equality or the rhetoric seriously, which it actually did in the early stages of the Communist Uh, Era, you know, and and Mao Zedong, as you just said, he he has this. His most famous saying is that women hold up half the sky. And if you look at the early communist era, you know, the state actually had. Um, it was assigning women jobs um, at state-owned enterprises in the cities. In the cities, by the end of the 1970s, you had almost, or, or even exceeding in some places, 90% female labor force participation, which is really virtually unprecedented around the world. Um, and there was a, a, a lot of state-mandated gender equality um, and that all came uh, un became unravelled, particularly um, after you know the onset of economic reforms at the end of uh, the the nineteen seventies and into the nineteen eighties. Um, so that's very complex, but um, but today, I mean. Even the Japanese government, I mean, Japan has entrenched sexism and, and misogyny, but even the Japanese government recognizes that um, women are the, the country's greatest untapped resource. And it's struggling. Womenomics, it's,
2: right, is the phrase that he Right, use. right.
0: I mean, uh, Shinzo Abe has called this policy womenomics, and he, he tried to introduce some policies but but because there isn't enough political will i mean that's a whole other story but at least the japanese government recognizes that in theory it should be trying to do something to tap into Um, women's vast potential to contribute to the economy and to build it up. But there is absolutely zero sign of that happening in China. And I mean, just look at the latest party Congress, where, you know, uh, there has never been a woman on the standing committee, which is the most elite political body. And then, then the next body below that is the Politburo. The Politburo had two out two out of 25 members of the Politburo were women in the previous Congress. That's now gone down to one, one woman out of 25. And then, then you go to the next rung below that, the Central Committee. That is a pathetic... De- I mean, now what is really incredible to me is that Ten, There are 10 women out of 205 Central Committee members. Well, how hard would it have been to throw in one or two more women, right, in the Second Party Congress? Then um, the People's Daily could have trumpeted all this... You know, new success. You know, there are more women in the Central Committee. No, they kept it static. It's almost as though they deliberately were sending the message that we are going to keep women down. Um, So there, there are 10 women in the Central Committee now. There were 10 women in the previous Central Committee, and that is lower than the number of women in the previous Central Committee was from, I think it was the previous, um, so 10 years ago.
2: The evidence is before our eyes. Your case is rock solid. I mean, politically, uh, it's it's really, you know, women are nowhere in, in China right now. But in business, I, I do feel as though it's different. I mean, not only from personal experience, some of the uh, best and brightest business people I've met, most confident, self-assured, and in charge of their own destiny in China, have been women. And I, I don't know how accurate they are, but I mean, I've seen statistics putting the percentage of female CEOs higher than the United States, and saying that China has the greatest number of female self-made billionaires. I mean, do you know whether those kind of statistics are accurate? And To what extent does any of that? And, you know, some of the evidence before that is also before our eyes. I mean, there are some amazing, prominent CEOs, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, Gene Liu of, you know, China's Uber, you know, Didi to Zhang Xin of Soho uh to uh madame ju from gree air conditioner it's it's a real phenomenon and let's not forget my favorite female right. entrepreneur the owner of lao ganma hot uh, spicy sauce um so um but right. <laughs> so yeah i mean is it accurate that china does actually do well in terms of female business leadership and you know what does that say about uh, actual progress for feminism in china
0: Right. Well, well, well. There, there are uh, several factors there. First of all, um, yes, I do see a lot of reports about how China has the most female billionaires in the world, and that may be true. First of all, this is not my area of expertise. I do not study female billionaires in China, but when I look at these reports. I, I haven't seen a single uh, really scientific study showing that there are more female CEOs in China than in the US. There are a lot of claims that that is true, but the claims are based invariably on highly biased surveys. Um, if you look at and I and I don't look into every single survey. It's just that I've seen so many of them to know that they're totally biased. And they they may be ca- the survey may be carried out by, for example, the client of a bank, where the bank itself is surveying all of its clients, and so it wants to make its clients feel good by saying, "Oh, look at all these women! There are there are more women in these positions." or women in the C-suite than there are in America. And then and then some journalist or somebody in America who really doesn't understand China will then do an article about it. And then it'll be given a lot of play, particularly by the Hurun list of richest people in China. They they I believe they come out with their list of wealthiest people in China every year. So there are a lot of problems with those claims to begin with. But that said there's no doubt that there are women who are phenomenally successful who are billionaires but overall if you if you look at the success of those women and then uh, uh, and then say that well those women are successful because they're in china which is more supportive of women that's completely false so let you brought up the example of didi the company which is run by a woman which is that is very true you should really read an article that Li Yuan of the Wall Street Journal wrote about women in tech in China. That's a really thorough article about massive gender discrimination in China's tech industry. And she even mentions Didi in particular, because when these companies are advertising jobs, They will explicitly tell women who are applying for jobs, sorry, we're not hiring women, which is actually illegal, but they do it anyway. So this practice of extreme gender discrimination, where companies just blatantly disregard the law, Chinese law, and they just flatly tell women who are extremely qualified, no, no, Go away. We're not considering women for these jobs. That is the reality for so many industries in China and particularly So you're saying
2: that these uh, successes are the exceptions that prove the rule, essentially, in answer to my question.
0: Yes, but I might also add that in part, I still believe that the early communist era and its policy of gender equality, and actually placing women in jobs, assigning women to top management jobs at state-owned enterprises, that there is still a legacy that dates back to that era, because it wasn't really that long ago. I mean, it was, you know, the 1950s and 60s, so young women who may have gotten started in, at, in that time, they may have, you know, accumulated a lot of management experience, and... Um, So there's still the legacy from that early communist period. Elements of that legacy are still alive today.
1: I've heard it argued, though, that China is an odd case because workforce participation by women before reform and opening was actually mandatory. Uh, I was in a conversation with my old boss at Baidu, Jennifer Lee, uh, the former CFO, who's a terrific feminist, by the way, and she reminded me of this. Um, She said that for many women, after reform began and people started to make money, the the really empowered move for a woman was to opt out of the workforce and, and to be able to stay at home. And that's what constituted success.
0: Well, I know that there are women, or not just women, there are people who make that argument that... First of all there is look at the statistics there is declining female labor force participation in China. There is also a dramatically widening gender income gap starting from the 1990s and continuing today, really dramatically widening. So so one reason that you know a lot of people always say this, they say this in the US as well. Well, women choose not to participate. They choose to leave the workforce because they just don't want to work. But Okay, obviously that's true for some women. But I would argue that for the vast majority of women, particularly in China, with a legacy of full employment, virtually full employment for women, Women, you know, they see their own mothers, their aunts, all of their older female relatives were always working. So that's a very strong work ethic. And I still think that is alive today. What you see today is a massive resurgence of gender discrimination, a structural gender discrimination that is impeding the advancement of women in the workforce and dragging them backwards.
1: Lita, I wanted to come back to something you had flicked at earlier. Uh, if I understand correctly, some civil society groups uh, discover pretty quickly that they all meet you know heavy state resistance when advocating specifically for feminist issues. Uh, so they shift their focus to things that advance women's rights more obliquely, uh, for instance through pushing things like the domestic violence law. Uh, has this been an effective strategy?
0: Well, it, I'm glad you brought up the domestic violence law because this, in a way, is an example of something that began as being very politically sensitive and then became accepted and made in. It actually became a law. Um, so, for many, many years before the passage of this domestic violence law, in um, w- which was implemented last year, 2016. It, there have been feminist activists lobbying for this, the passage of this law, for 20 years prior. And, um, and also the All-China Women's Federation took it up. So there was a very strong, you know, decades-long effort to try to get national legislation passed um, to, to prevent and punish perpetrators of domestic violence a lot of the same women who were agitating for the passage of this law then turned around and were persecuted by the government for their political activism. So a lot of the the activists who are being persecuted today were also highly involved in trying to get this law passed. So, um, so, So the government, and you can see this with other issues, other social issues in China as well, that um, it's not necessarily the policy itself. Um, So China has adopted the domestic violence law. Um, But at the same time, it's still uh, persecuting some of the very same feminist activists who were aggressively pushing for it. so so I wouldn't say that domestic violence is actually a safe topic either, in spite of the passage of the law. so so I believe I mean we'll we'll see. I mean the, the law is very new, but I personally believe that now that the Chinese government has passed this law, it's really not going to do much to implement the law. And that has always been the problem with China is that, there are a lot of very good laws on the books in China, but are they implemented? No. <laughs> you know? So um, this law, uh, just judging from what feminist activists who are very involved in it say, the law is not being implemented properly. It's very spottily enforced. So one of the provisions is that if if a, a victim files a restraining order, now now that is legal. You weren't able to do that before. But um, a victim can ask a court for a restraining order. But it's incredibly difficult to get that restraining order and to have it enforced. So I have a lawyer friend who says, well, um, a right without a remedy is no right at all. And that is just so true with regard to China is that in theory, you have this right that the new domestic violence law can protect you from being abused by your husband or somebody as an intimate partner. But there is no, it's still so difficult to get redress. And without that remedy, because fundamentally there is no rule of law in China, then um, effectively you do not have the right. You you do not have protection.
1: Well, there's really so much more to talk about, but we're coming up on the hour. Uh, We do, however, need to hear about your new book. So what can you tell us about it?
0: Well, the book really revolves around a lot of personal stories of feminist activists. So I interviewed all of the feminist five, for example, about their experiences and and a lot of other women who are involved um, in the feminist movement and because their stories are absolutely fascinating. so so there's a lot of narrative in the book. Um, but I also talk about the history of feminism and revolution in China um, and also how women's rights are, bound up with a lot of critical uh, economic and social and political rights issues in China. So it's um, it's a pretty broad book that touches on a lot of issues related to women's rights um, and China's future, political future.
1: We definitely look forward to having you back on the show to talk about it. Uh, so make sure to send Jeremy and me galleys as soon as you have them.
0: I will. Thank you.
1: Well, Leda, it's been wonderful to have you back on, and we really look forward to the publication of the next book, which again is called Betraying Big Brother The Rise of China's Feminist Resistance. And before we let you go, let's make some recommendations. And before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SUPChina. Sign up for SUPChina's free email newsletter and follow us on Twitter at Sup China News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash news, And don't forget to go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store to help other people discover our podcast. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this
2: week? So I've been trying to make up for some terrible gaps in my knowledge of China's neighborhood. And one place I don't know very much about is Japan, uh, to my shame. And I'm trying to remedy that. So one of the things I've read that I've been enjoying is uh, by Ian Baruma, and it's called A Japanese Mirror, subtitled Heroes and Villains of Japanese Culture. Um, Anyway, it's uh, quite a fun
1: book and very informative uh, for the novice to Japan. Yeah, I quite like Ian Baruma's stuff wherever I've encountered it, in magazines and so forth. Yeah, it's a lovely, easy read and just really interesting and well-informed and erudite. Later. So, what do you have for us this week?
0: Well, I'm going to recommend a blog which is new. Um, it's called Women and Gender in China, or WAGIC for short. Um, it just came out a few months ago and it's run by um, a University of Nottingham scholar, Shay Kehoe, and uh, some of her colleagues. And it's this english language blog that writes every week it has a, a few articles about women and gender in china it's i mean it's something that's really needed um, and it's also related to to the twitter account which i also recommend if you're on twitter which is half the sky 49
1: oh yeah it's terrific the blog uh, also the twitter account uh we've recommended it before on the show um Great stuff and very appropriate, given our topic of conversation today. So before I do my recommendation, I wanted to to give a big thank you to Nathaniel Davis and to his colleague Krish Rogov, both from Splitworks. Uh, When we were recording Jane Perlez in Beijing uh, the night before, I was frantically looking for somebody who could help us as a recordist. And uh, Nathaniel put his hand up, and Krish actually went over to to help out in the morning, Uh, did a terrific job recording Jane for us in Beijing. So thanks very much to you guys. Uh, Another overdue shout-out, this time in the form of my actual recommendation uh, for this week, it's the China Channel at the LA Review of Books. I can't believe I haven't actually recommended it already. Uh, They've been churning out quite a bit of really, really good stuff under the leadership of folks like Jeffrey Wasserstrom and, of course, Alec Ash, both of whom have been guests on our show. And they've got an all-star cast of really top China people like Eileen Chow, who's just up the road from me here at Duke University and Mara Cunningham, and Mengfei Chen, and Anne Uh, Hedden-Chowitz. There's writing there from many names who our listeners are going to be familiar with, so definitely check it out if you aren't already a regular reader. It's at Chinachannel.org. So, Leida, thanks once again for taking the time.
0: It was my pleasure, Kaiser. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks, Jeremy.
1: Thank you, Leida. The Cynica Podcast is powered by China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at sineca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subchina news. And follow us, of course, on Twitter at at subchina news. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.